Welcome to episode five of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Andrew Young. So Andrew is strategy and operations lead at Meta, formerly Facebook, community builder and writer. He's active in the NYC tech community and regularly hosts dinner parties, mixers and events for a thousand plus people. Andrew is also an advisor to startups on growth and operations. Now, prior to Meta, Andrew was product manager at Bell, Canada's communications leader. Andrew also holds a double major in finance and economics from the University of Toronto. So it's time to dive right in. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for for having me. I'm glad we can make this happen. So whilst it's hot off the press, let's start with last night so you threw an event in nyc which sounded like the biggest yet talk me through your catalyst to connecting the best in tech startups and investing and why you ultimately want to bring people together yeah for sure and i I think just to provide a bit of context you know we you know un who's sort of my my business partner in all this uh we rented out a venue uh for about 200 people um, you know, sort of promoted it through my newsletter and Twitter and, you know, had, had a great turnout overall, had a great time. Um, you know, this morning is sort of hurting a little bit, but, you know, good to go. Um, I think generally, you know, I like to think in terms of, you know, you get, get top performers in a room. Um, and by top performers, I mean, folks that are like motivated, you know, they're friendly, they're open-minded, um, get them together in a room and, and really magic happens, right? Like business happens, friendships happen, um, and so anything, anything I can do to sort of foster um, that kind of energy, I'm always there for it. Um, I think to elaborate a little bit more, you know, you and I both know about the idea of like zone of genius. Um, and I tend to think I'm good at like finding people, you know, connecting people, and then also sort of building the infrastructure to connect people, whether it is a, uh, an event or a dinner or that sort of thing. Um, I also think it's, it's just great you know, great business and social value. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what makes it really incredibly rewarding for me um, from a, from a business sense as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm all for that social value aspect. And I know you're a prolific connector of people. Talk me through the idea of being this quote unquote super connector and why community building is important to you. Yeah, for sure. I think you know, it goes back to, um, sort of when I first moved to New York, you know, August, August, 2020, right in the middle of COVID, um, you know, I'd always wanted to move to New York city. I'd lived in, you know, five, four different countries prior. And I was excited to meet people, um, wanted to go to events and that sort of thing. You know, obviously nothing was happening. And so, you know, in that there was a bit of it was biased to action and, you know, because nothing was happening, I sort of had to create it myself. Um, so I was like, why not? And I went ahead I met a lot of sort of Twitter friends, um, Reddit friends, you know, people from Fishbowl, LinkedIn, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, we did outdoor sort of socially distanced meetups. And then over time, those things evolved. And, you know, t- two years later, um, it's, it's been a lot more collaborative with, you know, venues and bars and that sort of thing. But I think it really comes down to observing a problem that I had and then just having the bias to action to go ahead and execute it and, and just really deliver. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, bringing people together, at least from both an online space to an event or party in person is very, very different. I'd 
love to hear a bit more because you you mentioned you moved to New York back in August of 2020. Talk me through really the merits and drawbacks of both sides for both online and in-person events and really how has that developed since coming out of the peak of COVID? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think online, and you're, you're probably very familiar with this as well, but online community building is very is very scalable. You know, it's very easy to jump on five back-to-back um, Zoom calls, meet five people. It doesn't take much energy. There's like no logistics. You don't have to travel to, you know, a coffee shop and, you know, what have you. Um, in real life, though, the energy is a lot better. And I think after doing, you know, two plus years of remotes and, and Zoom, um, I, I've, you know, I can't, I can't work from home anymore, actually. I'm in five days a week. I really crave that sort of in-person energy. Um, that's for the one-on-ones. For the, for the larger scale events, I've, I've never really gotten used to, you know, the big online conferences. I just find it hard to connect with people because normally when you go to a large conference, right, you probably meet someone else and you'd sidebar with them. And that's how the real sort of magic happens. That's how you connect with someone in a more intimate way. Um, I don't think the infrastructure of, you know, the online events platform lets us do that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pause right there. Sure. I think, yeah, there's a clear contrast that you mentioned between that one, we have scalability on at least when you have an event online or you're speaking to people online versus when it's in person, you absolutely have that, that, that personal touch, that personal feel, which, I find is very hard to replicate, Andrew. I think, you know, in, in terms of that energy dynamic, how can you actually scale these in-person meetups so that you can reach a level where you're not diminishing that relationship? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. And, and honestly, I don't, I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I think part of it is, you know, I, I've been doing these meetups and I'm not the person, I'm not the first person to do it you know, for sure. Um, but as a result of, of, you know, doing a few of these, you know, other folks are now inspired to go off, you know, I'm, you know, perhaps you're doing one in London or, you know, someone just DM'd me and they're doing one in Australia. And so that, that's an example of sort of a great, um, inspiration story. And that, and that makes me feel great. And that I had a part in that, um, it's, it's really hard to connect with, um, you know, people in a one-on-one setting when you have 200 people in the, in the same room. So, you know, last night's event, I told myself I could really only have maybe three or four deep conversations. I could probably talk to about 20, 30 people. And then beyond that, um, I'm really not able to, to uh, form relationships with anyone else. I think, you know, back to your online to offline, that's when I sort of follow up after the event. And, you know, sort of think about who I talked with, think about who I didn't get the chance to connect with. And then I'll follow up offline and, and, you know, send them a message. And, and then from that point on, I'd grab, grab coffee or grab a drink or something like that. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think, you know, expanding your sort of array of events that you, that you're now hosting, Andrew, as well as drinks and mixes, you also host dinners. Now, the sharing of food has always been part of the human story. To break bread together, it's you know a phrase as old as the Bible. It really captures the power of a meal to forge relationships, bury anger, and provoke laughter. So why do you enjoy dinners so much, and how foundational have they been to the relationships that you forge today? I think you, you, put, you put it a lot, whole lot better than I was able to. 
um, you know, I always ask myself, like, why do the, the dinners are so much better than, than the big parties? Um, and to an extent, like, they're better than a one-on-once. And, you know, that's because exactly for all the reasons you mentioned, um, dinners are intimate. And there's something about sharing food with someone else that makes you feel more connected with them. Maybe something to do with the dopamine rush when you have you know, good food, um, you know, something along those lines. I've also found that, you know, eight, eight is sort of the magic number um, in terms of it's not too big. Um, it's not too small where you can get diverse perspectives. So I have been optimizing, you know, grabbing dinners, um, for about eight people. And the, and the way I do that is, you know, I look around my social circle, um, try to identify, um, I guess, temperaments and, and personality type and, you know, what, what they're really looking for. You know, for example, you know, some, some founders are looking for funding. Some investors are looking to invest. Some companies are looking to hire, um, figure out who would sort of get together, um, and then, you know, just from that point on, grab a reservation at a place and, and yeah, do the dinner there. Andrew, and I feel that has a lot to tie in with our point earlier about these in-person meetups. When you have a larger conference, like you said, the best conversations have when you break away and are actually having that intimate time with that individual versus sitting there in rows and, and listening to the keynote speaker. I think something about sharing food, like you said, it's, it's, it's very innate in our DNA. And I, this whole idea of interaction, community building, the piece that underpins it all is the idea of social capital. It's the dark matter that binds connections between people we know, like, and trust. So how do you think about building social capital from an offline to an online setting, Andrew? Yeah, I, th- I think there's you know, both a more philosophical and then a tactical sort of response to that. So, you know, f- philosophically, I think, you know, my, my motto is always to try to be the most helpful person. Um, and whether that is online or offline, you know, some examples like online, you know, I, I'll provide introductions where I think it makes sense. I'll tag people on, on Twitter threads if I think, you know, these guys w- would get along. Um, and I'm, I'm always available. So my calendar is always open. So anyone can sort of, you know, book time with me, uh, in a sense, it's sort of, I have a daily, uh, sort of office hours for anyone who wants to chat, um, a little bit more tactically. Um, I think I'm very mindful of all the platforms I use. And so to reach all the folks, you know, that come to the dinners and the parties, there is a newsletter. I have another email list. Um, I have, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the tactics in which you, you sort of communicate with people on those platforms are actually pretty, pretty different. Um, so the way you engage with someone on Twitter is, is completely different from the way you would talk to someone in an Instagram, as I'm sure, again, you're familiar with. Uh, so being mindful of how I engage with people, the people I invite, um, and with all that underpinning the, the concept of just being the most helpful person I can um, is, I guess, how I approach uh, social capital and and brand building. Yeah, I really like the idea of having that daily office hour. How do you effectively balance that from sapping time that could be allocated to additional products or sorry projects versus opening new opportunities? So I'm I'm pretty strict on my schedule, and I'm I'm involved in a couple of different things that are you know pretty different from each other. So I have my full time job. 
um, I write, I do the events, and then um, I also um, advise and, and teach a program called Skillflow, which is a cohort-based course. Um, so in order to sort of, I guess, chunk my time differently, um, I have hard rules on, you know, what I should be doing during these time blocks. Um, from nine to five, it's always my full-time job. I don't really do anything else during that time except for my full-time job. Um, my office hours are every day except for Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. And so I typically do 20-minute coffee chats. Those slots are always open. And because my mind has adjusted to that schedule, um, at this point, I'm, I'm sort of used to it. I've allocated that time you know, in perpetuity to meeting new people. Um, so I'm adjusted to it. I sort of prep myself uh, for the sessions. And it's it, at this point, it's it's pretty natural. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in chunking your time and at least being able to compartmentalize your life it's definitely a way to get to a place where you feel more in control of your life i think it definitely allows you to divide up these tasks responsibilities and thoughts that you have in many many different areas of your life so that they don't overlap and at least fight for your attention all the time andrew <laughs> um, i would love to now dive into the idea of engineered serendipity off the back of social capital this is a concept that I know we've heard a lot of recently on Twitter, but for those who are unfamiliar with the concept, engineered serendipity is really the ability to observe and act on happy and unexpected opportunities. It's a state of mind that allows you to notice meaningful coincidences, often where others might not. So for you, Andrew, how does engineered serendipity come into play when you're connecting with strangers and how do you capitalize on those select moments? Yeah, I, I love this term. I love this word. Um, it's a beautiful word, beautiful concept. And, and I try to embrace it as part of, you know, who I am. For sure. So I, I think the first thing is um, you've probably heard the regret minimalization framework and it's, you know, if you could do this or if you two options, pick the, pick the option that will yield um, the, least amount of regret in the long term. And so that's something I follow pretty re religiously um, between you know, staying at home and watching a TV show or going out and meeting someone new from Twitter or LinkedIn. I'll always take the, uh, the latter option. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is when I do meet people, when I do connect with people, um, there's a couple of things I do. So one, you know, I mentioned I try to be as helpful as possible. Um, I always offer to provide value. Um, I'll ask you know, what challenges are you facing right now? And then if there's an opportunity for me to, in that moment, share my thoughts, um, or perhaps I can go home after and, and do some research and do some digging and think more deeply about it, um, I will always try to help with someone's biggest challenge. Um, I think saying, um, saying yes to more things, um, I think opens up a lot more opportunities as well. Um, when I meet someone, I'll also just invite them to stuff, right? I'll mention that I, I do dinners and events, um, and find a way to connect with them so I can sort of, you know, follow up on that conversation. And so it's really, I think it's a product of sharing sort of some expertise, uh, focusing on their biggest problem, and then, you know, finding an opportunity to, to follow up with them later on. Yeah, you mentioned some really interesting points there. Um, the first, at least, is the idea of providing value first, right? Offering this series of jabs and amassing this bank of goodwill when you first meet a person by giving them value for free. I think 
when you do that, the relationship quickly becomes reciprocal because the other person recognizes that and goes, oh, damn, Andrew's, Andrew's given me a lot here. He's, you know, opened the door to opportunities of which no other human hand could have provided. And okay, this, this could really be the start of something special. So really, really for that. At least the other idea of this regret minimization framework, when you actually seek to minimize your regrets, the answers tend to reveal themselves. So I, I, I love that whole mental model and how you can in turn apply it to your life. I guess rewinding the tape a little bit, you mentioned your email list, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. How are you increasing your surface area of luck right now, both in an online and offline setting? And what would be some of the tools that you're using? Yeah, most most generally, I think I'm, I'm doing a couple of things. Uh, one is I am trying to meet as many people as possible Mostly, mostly in the one-to-one setting, because as as you know, that's how you build, you know, have some of the deeper conversations and, and build a deeper connection. And so the office hours are great. Um, you know, I'm I'm I reach out to, typically I reach out to about ten new people every week, doing something that I I find interesting, um, just to pick their brain a little bit, ask them a few questions. I'm throwing a lot more events um, to capitalize on, I guess what I would call inbound, and it's the people who have. You know, similar interests that will come to the events, um, and in a sense, will will be able to connect with me, and I'll be able to connect with them. I mentioned this earlier, um, saying yes a lot more. Um, you know, I I don't think I have too much free time now, but I do have a lot of things that I can shift off the priority list um, that are, you know, somewhat uh, low priority, so I can make the time. And I do I do want to experiment a lot more. Um, like a friend, a friend, a mentor of mine, very successful and build, built and sold companies, um, now works at Meta with me. Um, his thing is, you know, try more things, like try shit, um, you know, to put in a more direct way. And that's what he attributes his success, his success to is just sort of maximizing, you know, that serendipity surface area, as you mentioned. Um, and then the last thing, you know, I've been saying this throughout, but it's just being, being uh, the most helpful person I can, like being, uh, providing value and, um, helping others out when, when they need it. And even when they don't, you know, when they don't. That's really impressive. You know, reaching out to 10 people a week, it really maximizes your, your surface area of luck there, Andrew. I'd love to hear a little bit more through your process. Talk, talk me through that. Do you warm up the intro by interacting with them in the comments section first, or do you dive straight in with the DM? Yeah, perhaps I need to be more tactical on this one, but I just send a DM. <laughs> I I will either send an email or a DM, uh, depending on who the person is. Um, I think in in some cases, in very few cases, I have, um, you know, from a Twitter sense, I have sort of engaged with them and commented on their stuff. Um, that's been more organic and less intentional. It's more so been the result of oh, like this content is interesting. I want to engage with it. Um, unless because I want to build a relationship with this person, but I think that's a that's a very interesting um, you know, mindset and, and tactic that I've recently seen, um, and you know, curious to learn more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are definitely merits on both sides, Andrew. At least some people welcome that cold DM, or at least a, an email directly to their inbox of someone who's you know passionate and interested. Um, in in at least forming a relationship versus 
saying hi and making yourself known over, say, the series of a week or two through their comment section, most likely on Twitter, because I know we're we're both quite quite active on there. I think both have their part to play. At least pivoting slightly, let's go back a little bit further, Andrew. Talk me through the journey to you now being strategy and operations lead at Meta. For sure. So, you know, before this, um, that was my, um, I guess my first, first full-time job. I was at a company called Bell Canada, a telecommunications company. Yep. Was in a rotational program, so played several roles there. Um, I went to the University of Toronto, um, which is, you know, a, a good school. Um, I wouldn't say um, like an amazing school. Um, and I would also say, you know, the, the company I previously worked for was, was a good company. Um, but, you know, not, you know, in my eyes, not, not like a, an incredible company. And so I think when I look back to, to Meta and, and these big tech companies, like Google and Meta, uh, they, they tend to hire, you know, they tend to look at pedigree in, in some sense. So, you know, um, Ivy League grads, you know, folks who've worked at the top consulting companies, you know, that sort of thing. And so I knew my path into tech you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be the same. I would face a lot more obstacles. I had to take a different approach. And I think the way I saw it was, you know, if you think, think of a club, there's sort of a front door and a back door. The front door is just submitting your resume through the portal. Um, if your resume is amazing, then, um, you know, you, you get a call back. Um, and the back door is like, you know, what we call, you know, quote unquote networking. It's connecting people. It's everything we've discussed about cold uh, DMs and, and that sort of thing. And so that was really my tactic um, I convinced myself that if I could talk to 20 people at Google or Meta, whatever, I could get a job there. And so I really optimized for that. Um, if I think back to the period where I was looking, it was a six-month sprint where I probably connected with um, you know, a couple hundred people, um, had chats like this. And um, you know, long story short, that's, that's my way of getting in. Yeah, I love that story. And I guess to sort of bolster that point, Ramin Chef on Twitter, I know he did a fantastic thread all on entering through the side door where he's essentially saying, look, forget the front door, enter through this other idea, be it the side door. It isn't easy. It isn't as easy to find as the front door. It's very much, you know, back to the bar analogy, you know, the, the side door could be some alley in the back. It's definitely not as obvious, but you've got to find it because the level of of propulsion that that will give you in your in your career by getting in at least part of the way up the ladder is night and day in terms of compressing timelines so that's really really awesome you mentioned you know this this big company pedigree how at least did you find yourself to sort of slot in to this, you know, preconceived notion, Andrew, and and at least to what extent should this or shouldn't this be part of the hiring process? Yeah, that, that's that's a tough question. I mean, I think tactically, uh, what I did was, um, you know, everyone says highlight the transferable skills, and that's a huge thing. And I think zooming out, you know, from the world of, you know, I worked in, you know, at one point I worked in sort of risk management in telecommunications, but zooming out from that. And then zooming out from telecommunications and sort of understanding what similarities there are between that and, and or between that and what I wanted in tech. Um, and I think at a top level, you know, like most jobs are pretty similar. 
you know, whether it's strategy and ops or marketing and product management, like most jobs really have um, three inputs and it's, you know, looking at data, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, it's um, using that data to inform a strategy and then it's ex- executing that strategy. And every, every sort of non-technical job I know um, sort of umbrellas under those three um, concepts. So highlighting that, highlighting that is, is really key. Um, I think in some of the recruiters' eyes, I didn't have tech experience, but you know, my argument is I don't, I don't need tech experience. I have those three things and those three things are things you need to do to job. Um, so I think in, in, in a sense, it's just highlighting those three things and, and making it very clear that you do have what it takes to get the job. Absolutely. I'm all for, you know, grit, perseverance and really showing up and showing them what you, what you have to give at least finding the marriage between these sort of two broad topics that we've been talking about today, Andrew, this idea of community and also going into tech with Meta and the workplace. When you build a community, you very much have a finger on the pulse to societal trends and shifts. How does that help you inform the work that you do and also the content that you produce online? I think... You know, my, my, my writing and the content is, is really the result of, um, you know, the framework inputs and outputs. And the inputs are the things I read, um, the people I talk to, you know, the, the videos I watch sort of thing. And the output is anything that comes out the other side um, with, with my brain and my environment being in between those two things. Um, I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, the, the, the let's use writing, for example. Like my newsletter, I tend to think that is not too influenced with what's happening um, in the environment or, or, or in the society. Um, a lot of that is, is more so, you know, what I'm reading at that very point in time. Um, and, you know, sometimes I read books that are from hundred years ago, 50 years ago. Um, I will say the other part of that is that I get, I do get a lot of inspiration from Twitter. And so from Twitter, you can identify, you know, what's hot at this point. What are people talking about? Um, you know, James Clear, I think, um, is a huge influence, um, but he also has a lot of timeless stuff um, from from a few years back as well. So I guess the, the short answer to that question is I, I tend to produce content more in um, isolation um, of what's happening outside my, my reading and, and, and the people I talk to. Uh, but other than that, you know, for example, news, um, that kind of thing, I, I don't really follow as much. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Um at least I at least follow a, a similar approach, Andrew, in that, you know, I'm, I don't enjoy consuming the mainstream media due to the narrative that they often push. And I think at least like, like, like you mentioned, producing content in isolation really informs your reading and it allows you to hone in on what you become passionate about. Speaking of passion, where did your inherent passion for tech stem from? Yeah, I, I think of tech and, you know, or tech companies or software um, from two different lenses. And the first one is, is probably more relatable. It's, you know, tech companies, um, the culture at a tech company will enable me to have, you know, I believe uh, with a better life. So, you know, there are perks. Um, the people I work with are incredible. And, you know, like I mentioned before, top performers where they are motivated you know, ambitious, but also open-minded and collaborative. And those, those are the people I want to spend my time with 
you know, inside and outside the workplace. Um, the work is interesting because it's, it's ambiguous. A lot of these tech companies are fairly new, you know, 10, 10 to 20 years old. So there's, there's a huge opportunity to build, build something for yourself and, and build something that has the ability to, to sort of scale, um, you know, globally. And that, that sort of brings me into the second lens, which is when I, when I was younger, I read a book called Blitzscaling. And that's really been my inspiration for why I think tech is so cool. Um, software um, is extremely high leverage. It's got the ability to sort of scale to any, any part of the world, um, you know, with very limited resources. And I think that kind of growth, that kind of scalability, you know, conceptually is, is pretty damn cool, um, you know, which is why, you know, I, I love software companies so much. Yeah, I, I, I'm absolutely with you there, Andrew. Um, Blitzscaling is such an awesome book and many of the principles of which can be applied to life itself. What advice would you give others who are wanting to break into tech for both a new startup as well as a larger incumbent? Yeah, I think, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, talk, if you want to work at a company or if you're interested in a company, um, just talk to the people there. Um, you know, the, the reason we hear this advice so much is because it's, it's so true. Um, back to what I shared earlier, if you want to work at a big tech company, try to talk to 20 people there. And coffee chats are, in some sense, um, a way of how they evaluate you. So an interview in, in some sense. So make sure that every chat you do with someone, it's, it's progressing. That's it. Like talk, talk to a lot of people there. Um, the second thing is transferable skills. So, you know, zooming out. If you're, you're, if you're in a very specific niche right now and if you're siloed in what you think is a very, um, specific area, there's always the opportunities to zoom out and understand, you know, what are your skills and capabilities? Um, and how can you provide these to the company you want to work for? And that takes a lot of reflection and it takes a lot of, like I mentioned, zooming out, um, you know, talking to other people, understanding conceptually, you know, product, for example, product marketing means a different thing at every company. And so understanding what it means at that company and how you can fill that gap. Um, and then the last thing is there are a lot of tactical things you can do to, to build a relationship with a recruiter or a hiring manager. And this goes back to how you use LinkedIn and how you use Twitter um, so learning, learning those tactics, um, I, I won't go through it now because there's probably hundreds of them, uh, but learning those tactics and using them to, to build a relationship with some of the recruiters and, and getting, you know, your profile in front of them, um, is, is pretty key as well. Absolutely. You know, find at least relating to our point previously, you know, getting in through the side door, exposing yourself to that surface area of Yes, absolutely. Speak to 20 people at the company, get involved, get ingrained and see where it leads. Now, Andrew, going back to your writing on Substack, you write prolifically at Andrew.today, writing about you know, growth, productivity, performance. What lessons have you pulled from writing online and how does that translate over to broader life? So the so big, biggest thing for me is, is communicating you know, better. Um, being more plain spoken, um, being more concise in how I both, you know, both how I write and, and how I speak, um, and even how I work. Uh, that, that has been for sure, uh, the, the biggest learning for me. Um, some, I guess some second order effects are, you know, when I write, it normally comes from, um, two different places. One is I think of a, a problem that I'm having that I haven't solved yet. 
Um, and by writing, um, I engage, I guess, my, my, my mind a little bit more and I'm able to solve that problem because I put intentional thought into it, um, research, uh, that sort of thing. Um, the other area is if I've recently solved the problem with a framework or with, with an idea or a mental model, uh, then I just want to share it out. And it helps me validate that framework, get feedback on it, um, and just provide some value out to the, you know, the people that are reading my newsletter as well. Um, I think going from that, you mentioned you've lived in five different countries, which is pretty, pretty damn impressive. How has this ability to adapt to new environments helped you succeed? Yeah. So, you know, just, just to sort of give some context, um, I was in, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China for about 20 years in Canada, most, most recently for seven. And then now I'm in the United States in, in New York city. Um, I think the, the one thing it's taught me is, um, I don't know if I'm using this analogy correctly, but being a chameleon, uh, being able to blend in, um, and sort of tailor your personality, your temperament, the way you communicate to different personality types, because culturally, um, culturally, I think Canada and the U S is, is actually pretty different. Um, even more so between Canada and China and even between those three regions I mentioned in, in Asia, um, you know, between those, those places as well. So it's taught me how to communicate with different kinds of people. It's taught me how to influence, you know, through, through communication, influence the different kinds of people as well to, to get to, you know, good outcomes for, for both of us. And then the last thing is everything we've been talking about, which is how to, how to make friends, how to build community. Because every time I've moved, um, I've had to, you know, make new friends and, and rebuild my network. Um, you know, for example, when I moved to Canada, um, from living after living in China for or Asia for 20 years, um, I barely had a network there. I maybe had two people I knew. Um, so building that from scratch and then, you know, going from Canada to, to, um, the United States, um, I had, I had some friends here. Um, but again, also building that network from scratch and especially my, my professional network, um, where I didn't have, um, you know, much, many people I knew. Yeah. You highlighted being a chameleon, which I love. It definitely opens up this idea of adaptability. And I think you, Andrew, you have a, a great way to transform yourself for each circumstance or new role that you put yourself in. So I think there are huge merits to that. Now, 24 hours before this podcast, I asked Twitter for questions they want to ask you, Andrew. So we've got a couple of good ones from my friend Brian Bork. Now, he asks, how can introverts participate effectively in community? That's a great word. Um, I'm very, you know, just to provide some context, I'm, I'm very lucky and very fortunate to be you know, a, a pretty extroverted person. So I get a lot of energy from, from meeting people. Like after the party last night, you know, I wanted to you know, go to another one. Um, so I, I don't relate too much, um, but I will try to put myself in the shoes of, of, of an introvert. Um, I think you really have to find the, uh, the channels and the tactics that work for you. So for example, where, where mine is, you know, going to parties and, and getting all that social interaction. Um, one that might work for an introvert is, is, you know, like online platforms like Reddit, commenting, um, DMing people there, building a relationship with someone there. Um, Discord is another one. You can have pretty insightful, deep conversations with someone just off, you know, messaging them. Twitter is, is probably another one there. 
Um, it's just finding the platform that you are energized by that involves another person or involves a, a broader community and then um, using using that to your advantage. I think as an introvert, like your your key sort of tool is is one to ones because they are probably less you know less draining and and, and more comfortable. Um, so doing a lot of one on ones as well, and you know in in sort of um, collaboration with with the online sort of method, um, I think you could still successfully build community and, and make friends and that um, as well. Yeah, great answer. Really, really love that. Another question from Brian is, he asks, what are the underappreciated opportunities you see for marketing within the meta ecosystem? Yeah, for sure. So in ter- is that question in terms of like how meta markets its brand or I just want to clarify? So I think there are a couple of interpretations here. One is the metaverse itself, be it the meta ecosystem. Two, be it meta the company. I think it would be interesting to riff on both. Yeah, let me let me share some um, I guess very high level thoughts. I'm you know I'm not really in that world. Um, you know my role is is much more internal. Um, but I think you know in the spirit of of our relationship and and you know the people we know, working with creators is always going to be a, a big one. Um, you know creators are sort of the fuel that goes into um, you know all these platforms, whether it's Instagram or, or Twitter, and so enabling those guys, giving them the resources, the, the financial capital, um, the network to be successful, I, I think is important. So in a sense, it's, um, you know, whatever that sort of marketing is called, you know, marketing to creators, maybe it's trade marketing. Um, for the company more broadly, I think, <clears throat> if I think of some of the headwinds we're facing now, um, you know, obviously there are a lot of other great social media apps out there. There is TikTok, which, you know, this is not new news. Um, but being able to engage with a, a younger audience, I think is very important. Um, so any, you know, any investment or anything we can think um, is. That's awesome. Um, we've come to the end now, Andrew, but I have so enjoyed doing this one, exploring everything from community building, hosting great parties, diving headfirst into increasing your surface area of luck, engineering your serendipity. It's been a real, real blast. So, so happy we could do this, my friend. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. It seems like, you know, we just, we normally do this anyway. Um, it's just not recorded. So, you know, it's, you know, why not record it and, and provide some uh, value and, and share a good story with everyone listening. So I appreciate you having me.